Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. I'm ready to study God's word today. We uh, pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through, 6, 6, 2 through 16 um, in our series uh, entitled Possible. And so I want to say this at the outset. There's kind of a turn that takes place now at this part of chapter 11 where Paul will now move forward to talk about things like uh, the Lord's Supper. He'll talk about spiritual gifts, um, prophecy and tongues in the church. Can't wait to talk about that. And, and yeah, and and also uh, to all my tongue talkers, and also um, he talks about um, the order of worship in the church. What it, what does it mean? Uh, what does orderly worship look like in the house of God? And so Paul talked about how they were to conduct themselves outside, but now the focus is on how we conduct ourselves inside of the local church and what that what that looks like. And you may think that that's not important, but it's so important because we we want to make sure that we give a an accurate presentation of who God is in the local church. So there has to be order. We don't want strangers or unbelievers to come in from outside and come into the church and and have to look at and try to interpret mass hysteria or disorder, right? And, And so God is a God of order. And so God also calls the church to be a church of order. So there's a time and place for everything. And so Paul is going to put some of this in its proper context. And today he gets to some real sticky and real hard to deal with today. But but in Jesus name, we'll get through this uh, passage of scripture. So first Corinthians chapter 11, verses two through 16, we'll read and then I'll pray for us and we'll get right into the word. First Corinthians chapter 11, verses two through 16 says this. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Here's what he says in verse 3. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of the woman. Don't leave. And God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since that is the one and the same as having her head shaved. So let me say this real quick. Head is a metaphor for also your head as the one who is in authority, right? And so we we see head there. We think about authority. And so Paul is using hair head, right, as a metaphor for who's in authority over a person, over a man, over a woman, over Christ, all right? So here's what he says. If a woman doesn't cover her head, her actual hair, she should have cut her, have her hair cut off. But if if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off on her shaved head, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So, too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Don't leave. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Stay right where you are. This is why man should have a this is why woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, however, woman is not independent of man. So you can stop playing that on your playlist. And man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, okay, here it comes. So man comes through woman and all things. Come from God. 
Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does even not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Don't cut your dress off just yet. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. You don't have to be in a rush to grow your hair out or sew it or whatever. For her hair has been given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Lord, have mercy. Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that we can study today. We thank you, Father, that you have called us by your grace. And so, Father, my prayer today is that the Holy Spirit would, would just work in our hearts and minds today as we study the word of God together. Um, I pray, Father, that you would bring great clarity to our minds and hearts about this particular passage of Scripture. God, I, help, I pray that it would help us to grow in our faith, that we would stand bold because of it, because of our understanding. God, I pray also that we would see and sense the call of God to live as who God originally intended for us to be. And so, Lord, I pray ultimately that your son Jesus is magnified, that your son Jesus is lifted up in our time together. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you. We bless you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said amen. From the sermon series possible, my sermon title this morning is Blurred Lines. Blurred, blurred lines. When I say blurred lines, I'm not talking about Robin Thicke. Let's get that out of the way. Oftentimes, this passage in particular is avoided. This particular passage of scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, is avoided. Um, this passage, some would consider this the most difficult, the most difficult passage in the entirety of the New Testament. But I want to say this, um, at, at our church, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't run from difficult passages. Um, I don't plan to preach all my favorite easy passages from Sunday to Sunday. I don't preach on the same topic every single week, but I, I do like to journey through the Bible so that we can grow in our faith together, so that we can put it all together, so that we can see how every scripture fits into the storyline of scripture. And so we don't, we can't run from hard passages. We want all the theological smoke. We want all the theological smoke. We don't, we don't duck and dodge anything. I want you to come to this church, be able to read your Bible, stand firm in the world about what you believe and who God has called you to be, right? But there's a reason why this passage is difficult mainly difficult because there are certain parts of this text that there's no consensus on what Paul is talking about. When he talks about because of the angels, no, no one knows what Paul means. No one knows where Paul grabs that from. Paul, we don't know what Paul is talking about when he mentions and references the angels in this particular passage of Scripture. So there's parts of this that we don't, we don't really know what Paul is talking about. The second reason why this text is kind of difficult is because the, the cultural context in which they are in and the one we're in is not linear. Like, there, there are certain things that they do in this culture and context that we don't do. So it is hard for me to build this bridge of contemporization from then to now. And so, so that, that makes it, it hard as well. But also, this passage is difficult for most pastors and preachers because this passage deals with the needless controversy between the roles of men and women. And so what this passage is going to do is talk about the role and relationship of men and women, specifically men and women in the church. And although this passage is difficult, it, it is challenging, it gives the church an opportunity to reclaim 
and recover God's beautiful design and intention for men and women and how they should function together. Together, this offers us an opportunity to, to present to the world a clear and compelling presentation of God's good design of men and women and how they work together for the glory of God. So here's what I want to say, and I'll level with you, put our cards on the table at the front end. What's difficult for some of us and what's difficult for people in the culture is that when we read words like wives submit to your husbands and we read words like man is the head of woman, the first words that come to our cultural mind are words like archaic, antiquated, old, obsolete. But what we don't realize even in the church is that when those words come to our mind because of these particular passages of scripture, what's happening is, is that the cultural mindset is creeping into our mindset and we now approach the text how the world approaches the text. But I want to say this about your Bible. I want to say this about your God and about your faith. God is not anti-women. Matter of fact, the Bible and Christianity is one of the only religions that says that both men and women have dignity and value in the eyes of God. A woman is not lesser than a man, and a man is not a superior to a woman. God has made both equal in dignity, value, and worth in his eyes. And so what I want to do today is lay a foundation for this theology, for why we believe that men and women both have equal worth, dignity, and value in the eyes of God. And we look no further than Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and what we would call the Imago Day. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, uh, reads, reads like this. It says this, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. And here's what he says. He created them male and female. We are both made, male and female are made in God's image. This is good for us to know this because God gave us our identity before we ever got here. You don't have to go and look for an identity when God already gave you an identity. You don't have to go and discover and ask the world what your identity is when God already gave you an identity. And let me tell you this, there is no greater identity to have than what God has already given us. God says you don't have to look like anybody else. I made you in my image. And so here's a couple things that I want us to know about being made in God's image. Here's what this means when it says that we are made in the image of God. Number one, it means that we know God. We know God. We have a relationship with God because we've been made in his image. Number two, we represent and we reflect God. Number one, we know God. Number two, we represent and reflect God. We reflect the character of God in the world, right? Thirdly, we work with God. We are what scholars would call God's vice regents. We work alongside of God. Notice when God wants to get something done in the earth, God didn't just fly down and, and, and do it himself. No, but God brought a man into the world, and he gave the man a job to steward, to, to go and, and till the garden, to make it better than when he found it. And so we are God's co-workers. We work along with God. So let me recap this. This is what it means to be made in God's image. Number one, we know God. Number two, we represent and reflect God. That is so important. Every day you wake up as a believer in particular, you represent and reflect the character and nature of God. And thirdly, we work along with God. So your job is not just your job. You are working along with God at your job. Y'all got that? Y'all here? Y'all here? Okay. So 
Here's the thing you need to know. We are made in God's, God's image, and there is no other species on earth that carries this honor. We have been set apart by God. We have been set apart by God, and we are the crown of God's creation. I want to read something that the greatest uh, king in Israel wrote about this in the psalm. Here's what David, King David said, Psalm 8, verses 3 to 5. David says this. He was talking about God. Here's what David says. When I observe your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place. What is a human that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. He was like, I'm looking at the stars and I'm looking at the moon. I'm looking at the skies. I see the sun every day. I'm looking at the the constellation in the the atmosphere. I'm looking at everything and, and I see the beauty in your creation. But you call us the crown of your creation. What are we that you are mindful of us? What, what, who, who, who are we? David is probably in touch with his own sin, in touch with his own frailty, in touch with his own weaknesses. And he's like, but we're the crown of your creation. And here's what it says in verse 3. You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. This is what God says about male and female. God thinks more of you than you think of yourself. We are the crown of God's creation. But we also affirm the equality of the sexes. And here's what I want to say. Here's where it gets controversial. Although men and women are equal in value, worth, and dignity, God, by his own wisdom, has made us different by design. We're equal, but we're different. A man is not a woman, and a woman is not a man. God has made us with distinct, yet complementing differences. God has made us distinct. We have different, yet complementing differences. Are y'all with me? God knew what he was doing when he designed men and women to be different, and he did not intend for us to lose the beauty of those differences. God intended that we would keep those distinct differences that are complementary between man and woman. God did not want us to blur the lines. God has set forth a created order in such a way That when we work together how we're supposed to work together, male and female, it brings glory and honor to God. And so when a man and woman is doing what a man and woman does and they work together and they work in unison and they're complimenting one one another, it's not just about the man and woman. But what we're doing is reflecting the beauty and the glory and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. So it means, means something but, but here is the challenge. Here is the challenge. There are cultural ideologies that we encounter more increasingly on a day-to-day basis that attempts to blur the lines of what it means to be a man or a woman made in the image of God. And so I, wanna, I just want to pause right here, and I don't mean to sound sensational or bombastic or to say something that is a, a lightning rod. I, I'm not trying to be political or I, I'm not doing any of that, but, but I'm just stating the facts and stating where we are in a time and day. Right now, e- even in our own culture, from a very early age, whether it be through TV shows or, or educational system, depending on where you live, in the name of freedom, 
small children are being taught to explore their gender identity. And so whether it be through cartoons, whether it be through certain stuff that they watch on the internet, children are slowly and subtly being trained to try to figure out something that is impossible for them to figure out. Children are being encouraged to explore stuff they have no reason to explore at their age. And so there are actual medical professionals out there, licensed psychologists and, 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 and doctors out there who are actually helping young, undeveloped children to explore what it means to change their sex. And, and we can sit back and just like be casual about it, but, but it's happening more increasingly. And, and here's the thing, we should have a problem with this because according to neuroscience, what we've learned is, is that the brain is not fully developed until a person is 25 years old. So how is a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 18-year-old, how can they make a life-altering, life-changing decision when their brain is not even fully functioning yet? The part of the brain is called the, the, the prefrontal cortex. It is, it is the, the, the part of the brain where we can kind of curb our impulses and we can kind of consider the outcome or the implications of a, of a life-changing decision. But if you're not 25 years old, your brain is not even fully developed yet. So how can a child make a life-altering decision that they might not feel the same way in the next few years? And so we have to be mindful of that. And we as a church have a responsibility to highlight the distinctive differences between male and female and show forth the beauty of God's design in our relationships. And so how we interact with each other matters. It matters. It matters to God. And so my theory is, is that, that underneath this push, this push for this sexual revolution and gender identity stuff, I think that there is something more sinister that is underneath the surface of it, right? And so if God called male and female to be fruitful and multiply, how is that even possible when... So, so it, 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 is, it, is, it, it, is, it is an offense. And so I, I want to I I say this, I want to say this, that the people of God, we have a serious responsibility to demonstrate to the world the beauty and the complementary gender distinctions between men and women. We as the body of Christ must lovingly and winsomely hold fast to the truth as revealed by God in the scriptures. And let me say this. I want to I say this. I want to step in it just for a second, but I'm not trying to be political or be a lightning rod. There, there's a, a thing out uh, uh, that they've ascribed or called uh, gender dys, uh, dysphoria, right, where a person and feel like they are trapped in the wrong body, right? And, and here's what I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say something insensitive, like that's not possible. Here's what I know. Romans 8 tells us that the creation is groaning. Because of sin, because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, the created order has been turned upside down. And, and, and so sin is in the world, and, and sin is everywhere. So I, I will not deny that it may be possible for somebody to feel like they are in the wrong body. 
It is possible for somebody to be attracted to somebody of the same sex. All of these things are possible. It is possible for a person to feel this way about themselves. It is possible for one person to feel like they are trapped in the wrong body. But I want to say this, that there is good news. There's good news in Jesus. Who better can, who, who can feel that person's pain more than someone who was, who was God but came and put on a flesh and had to exchange and put on our sin, tuck on our sin, what could be more uncomfortable for the perfect God to come in and take on sin. He knows what it feels like to be in the wrong flesh, but he did it anyway so that we can now be clothed in his righteousness. So there is good news even for you if you feel like you are trapped in the wrong body. Nobody can feel you like Jesus can. And, and so we have, to, we have to come to grips with it, that the gospel is the solution. And it's, it's, it's to say this, that our feelings are not final, but the work of Christ is. And so I want to say this, God has already predetermined and assigned an identity and gender to every person that has ever been born. And so we realize that feelings are not final. Feelings are not final. Here's what I want to say. I want to remind you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We studied this weeks ago. Here's what Paul says. And and so this was not some strange issue in the church at Corinth. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. But here's the good news. And such Where some of you, you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And so God is the only one through Jesus who can make us new. He is the only one that can wash us, sanctify us, and justify us regardless of how we feel about ourselves. So this is the good news. And so this may not offer a solution to the feelings of brokenness in our body, but it is a hope and a promise for the future that when Jesus comes back, he will heal every brokenness that we feel now. He will heal every brokenness. If your body feels broken, Jesus' body was broken for you on the cross. The gospel is our solution. But if we as the church know this to be true, we must hold tightly to it. We cannot be ashamed of what we believe, but we do not want to assimilate to what is happening in the culture around us. And by the grace of God, we strive to maintain our distinctiveness in our actions and in our appearances in the world and in the church. I want to say that again. By the grace and power of God, we strive to maintain our distinctiveness in our actions and our appearances in the world and in the church. Here's what I'm saying, if that doesn't make sense to you. Men must be men and women must be women. Think about this. Only a man can be a man. When, uh, the way a man walks, talks, when he walks in a room And he commands the presence, his aura, his smell, the way when he opens his mouth, how how children and women look and and pay attention because he is a man. The the way that he projects strength that, that, that serves as a sign of protection for women and children, only a man can do that. Only a, a woman can't do that. Only a man can. And when we think about a woman, the way she walks, the way she talks, the way she dresses, the way she smells, 
Just think about this. Come on, man. Come on, man. How, how she can perceive things like a man can. How she can read a room in a way that we can't. Guys, we can have a conversation with somebody, and we walk away, okay. And she could be like, did you just, he said to you, he just said to you, he just told you that you were dirty, that you don't smell good, that you're not smart, that you're not capable, that you're not intelligent. So you didn't pick on it. I picked up on what they were saying. Man, we can't do that. Only a woman can. Only a woman can walk in and display beauty and strength at the same time. A man can't do that. And all I'm saying is this. This is not just about men being men and women being women. This is male and female, both made in God's image and God's likeness, showing off the glory of God for a watching world to show what it looks like in the beauty of God's design. Women, God needs you to be women. And men, God needs you to be a man. Here's, here's what I'm going to say. The church is not archaic and antiquated. The, the church, do you know that the church was the only institution that ascribed equality and value to, to, to women in a culture that only saw women to be used for sexual fulfillment and to bear children? That the church comes in and it's radical train of thought and says, no, that, that women are more than just motherhood. Women are more than just wives. Women are called by God. Women are made in God's image. The church was the first to actually say that and ascribe dignity, value, and worth to a woman. So the church is not antiquated. The church is not archaic. The church actually was the most progressive institution that was around. But we don't know that because we take on the cultural vernacular. We take on the cultural mindset. But the church saw women as different by God's design, but just as gifted and just as important for the progress of society. And so I want to read this quote to you. Carolyn Custis James wrote in her book, Half the Church, Recapturing God's Global Vision for Women. Here's what she said. This is a moment for believers to embody a gospel where both halves of the church are thriving because following Jesus produces a climate of honor, value, and love, and we are serving God together as he intended from the beginning. This is a golden opportunity to restore to women the indestructible and elevated identity that they inherited as God's daughter and that a fallen world has stolen from them. So we have an opportunity. So what does this have to do with anything? When we see the text today, the women in Corinth are not sitting idly by. We see them praying and prophesying in the worship service. Women were expected to be full-on participants in what God was doing in the church. But here's what I want to say. There is a significant cultural difference and a significant cultural gap between where they were then and where we are now. And so I'm going to try to make sense of this. We, we may not have the same way of living, but I think the biblical principle behind it remains the same. And so here is the problem. Yes, the women in the Corinth were praying and prophesying in the church. The problem was is that the women were doing it with their head uncovered. And so you may say, what, what does that have to do with anything? Women in those days wore a head covering as a sort of symbol of submission and faithfulness to their husband. It was a sign of reverence. It was a sign of honor and respect for their husband. Now, we may see cultures today where you may see women who wear head garbs. 
And it may be a, a religious sign. It may be about modesty. It may be about humility or maybe submission to, to their husbands, right? And, and so this is no different in this context. The problem was, so women in this culture, they wore head coverings to honor their husbands. They were married women, right? The problem here is that because these women were now free in Christ to do what they wanted to do, they said, to heck with the head covering, we just going to pray and prophesy. Now, here's what I want to tell you. To not wear a head covering in Corinth meant something. I've said at the outset of this sermon series that in Corinth, this was a sexually charged city. I talked about the temp- temple of Aphrodite, who was the goddess, the goddess of love. And so there's a, a temple to the prostitutes. So prostitution was a big thing there. And, and it was a sexually in- explicit culture in which they lived in. And so when a woman did not wear a head covering, what she, sim- what she signified to everybody that was watching was that she was available. And when I say available, I don't mean single and looking for a man. I mean she was available. Y'all with me? Y'all get, do I need to interpret available? Y'all good on available? Okay. She was, she was, she was available for everybody. All right? And, and, so, and so to not wear head covering symbolized something. And so if, a woman, if somebody walks in church who is an unbeliever and they see women without their head covered, regardless of what she felt in her heart, Regardless of if she knew she was free in Christ, it communicated something that she didn't want for it to communicate. And, and so in the name of their freedom, these women said, you know what? We're not wearing this head covering. We're not going to wear this. We, we, we are now free in Christ. So we are free to, to look past the traditional values and behave and dress in a way that we see fit. And so every culture is different. And so I want to say this. Don't worry. You don't have to wear head covering in here when you come in church. All right. We, we don't live in the same culture. So whatever you want to do with your hair and your hair, that, that is your business. If you, if you want to grow it, sew it, buy it, dye it, tie it, flip it, or snip it, that's your business. All right? You do whatever you want to do with your hair. But the principle is the same. Present yourself in a way that not, does not bring shame, rather brings glory and honor to wherever your head is. This is important. And so you may say, well, I'm not married. I'm a single woman. Still, you represent Christ. If you're not married to a man, you're married to Christ. And so you represent him. So how you dress and how you appear matters to God. Okay? That's not just in the church. That's also on your social media. I know summer's almost over, but I feel in my spirit. Don't get that. Don't, Don't do it. Don't get that last pick. Don't get that in. Don't put it up there. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Do not, do not post it. Do not, remember that, do not post it, all right? It matters what we give off. Imagine it can be confusing if you got John 3.16 in your handle, but your post says something completely different. Are y'all with me? It matters. It's interesting because we serve in church, right? But if a person has seen your social media, but then they see you in church praising the Lord, I imagine that for them the lines are blurred, that they're confused. And although you don't intend anything by what you wear because you're free in Christ, right? 
You can do whatever you want to do. You're free in Christ. You know what's in your heart. The problem with that is it's just it's not about you. This is about showing off the glory of God. Are y'all with me? So, so, so it matters to God. Yes, yes, you, you are equal in worth and dignity and value as a man, but God calls us in these complementary relationships. And in these relationships, whether you are male or female, you are called to submit to. So everybody is submitted to somebody. Oftentimes we think, oh, it's only the woman that has to submit. But guess what it says in the text? Look at verses 3 through 4. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. Y'all got this? Every man has a head. And the man is the head of the woman. And guess what? God is the head of Christ. So, so even Jesus is submitted. Everybody is submitted to someone. And Jesus models for us what it looks like to, to be submitted. Jesus willingly and voluntarily submits himself to the will of the Father. But what we know from Jesus is that his submission to the Father, his submission was actually an act of service. And so this is a, the biblical submission is a submission that serves, not subjects. It's submission that serves, not subjects. So, so why does Paul write about them being submitted to, 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 their, to their head? Because Paul is pointing back to, 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 to the created order, that, that God had an order in creation. Here's what it says in verses 8 through 9. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Let, let's look at this in Scripture. This is Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 25. Look at this. Here's what happens in the creation account. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep Sunday nap to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man, and the man said, the first poetry that's ever been written, this one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she has, was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. And here's the key word of verse 25. Both the man and his wife were naked and felt no shame. The problem is when the woman usurps her authority, she brings shame upon her husband. She brings shame. And this is a call for the woman to not bring shame, but to bring glory through her submission. And here's what I want to say. We have this twisted view of what it means to be, be submitted. And so people shy away from it. People don't want to talk about it. But I want to read something to you. This is a quote from John MacArthur. Here's what he says. Never forget this. Man's authority over a woman is a delegated authority and a derived authority given by God to be used for his purposes. And in his way, man has no right to use his authority tyrannically or selfishly. Y'all got that? So a man has a right. If he is given this gift of a wife and she is to be submitted to him. He is supposed to steward this submission in a way that brings glory to God. So this submission is not abuse. 
This submission is not tyranny. This submission is not some sort of mean, harsh subordination to the man. But what he is doing is he is actually leading in a way that shows that he has submitted himself to someone who is above him. And that person is Christ. And so his submission, the way that he treats his wife who is submitted to him, will either bring glory or bring shame to God. So how a man leads the one who is under him matters to God. And I just want to say this, because I don't want to, this is not all about women, because he does say that, 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 that Christ is the head of man, and so even a man is submitted, right? But here, here's what I, what, what I want to say. Um, big homie, um, big homie, y- y- you got to give her something to submit to. Um, <laughs> do you even have a vision on how we're going to get God's will done together? Do you even have something for me to be a part of? Do you have something for me to submit to? Do you have something to me to su- for me to support? Right, right. I, 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 I'm ca- if you're called to lead, lead me somewhere. Lead, lead, give me something. Don't, don't say be submitted to me. And God didn't call her to be submitted to the struggle bus, right? It, it, that, this is not what God called them to. God, God didn't call them to be submitted to a long, enduring, forever struggle with no vision attached to it. That's not submission. That's misery. Okay, and so if you're going to have, a, notice what God does for Adam, and this can't go with, this can't be overstated. He gives him a job first. He gives him a vision for the future first. He says, work this, till this, make it better than what I got it. So when he gave him, her, him the woman, he was already working on something. Bro, what are you working on? Rapper is not a occupation for a 40. If it ain't popped off yet at 40, it ain't going to happen, dog. I'm not saying that God didn't call you to, to produce and be a whatever. He, I'm not saying this. Hey, but at some point, you got to make a decision and move forward with something that's going to be fruitful and productive and bring glory to God. SoundCloud is not something to be submitted to. Are we here? And ladies, this is not to say that if he, he's not rich, that don't mean you don't submit to him. Right? It's not about riches. It's not about money. This is not about what that is. The primary thing is that he is leading in such a way that he is leading us in glorifying God with our lives. Okay? That's what this means. So if he's nine to five in it and you're barely getting by, but you making it, but he has a vision for the future and you serving God together and you glorifying God and you praying to God and you managing your money well and you're doing the best at your job. This is something that you can be submitted to. You don't have to be submitted to somebody that's rich. Are we here? All right. That was not in my notes, but I went there anyway. Here's what I want to say. Here's the main point. Yes, you are free in the Lord, but you also have a responsibility to use your freedom to bring honor and glory, not shame. Here's how it plays in the context of the the church. 
Here's what he's saying. Because Christ is the focal point of the worship service, when you carry yourself and conduct yourself or dress in a certain way, where people now have to look at you, you rob people of what they came to actually worship. Okay? Now, we don't live in a day and time of church mothers, at least not at this church. Right? But, but, there was a time where you didn't walk up in the house of God and not get checked. Right? Today, we just, I don't know where we at sometimes. I just be confused. And you're, you're thinking, this is not about you not being fly. This is not about you not, be, not looking good. You, you can look good. You can wear your makeup. You can do your hair how you want to. You, you can wear nice clothes. You can wear expensive stuff. You do whatever you want to do. But it is to say that you consider, will this bring glory or will this bring shame? Right? And if your, your thought process is, well, I'll wear what I want to wear. I got I to get it how I live. I wear, I wear whatever I want to wear. I got to wear whatever looks good. And no man is going to tell me what I should be wearing. I'm free. God knows my heart. That may be true that God knows your heart. But if you're still dressing like you want to dress, that demonstrates that he knows your heart, but you don't know his. Yeah, he does know you, but you don't know him. That, that becomes, but if you knew his heart and his heart for you and what he was trying to do in your life, you would live and present your, way, your life in such a way that you would bring glory to him. And this is all Paul is saying. So, I just want to say this, that God has called both man and woman to reflect the glory of God. Verse 7 says this, and I'm almost done. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So, too, woman is the glory of God. And what he's saying is women and men both jointly reflect the image and likeness of God. If you are a woman that is worthy of honor and respect, carry yourself in a way that leaves no doubt about who you are and who you represent inside and outside of the church. Right. And so here's what he says. This is about the mutuality between men and women. And and I'm done. It's my last my last point. Verses 11 through 12 says this in the Lord. However, woman is not independent of man and man is not independent of woman for just as woman came from man so man comes through woman and all things come from God and so really in the beginning Paul talked about how woman came from man and man did not come from woman he's talking about the first man and the first woman that's about the first Adam right but 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 after after Adam, ever since then, every man has come through a woman. Every man has come into the world through a woman. And this is something that highlights the interdependence of both male and female. A man cannot produce by himself, and a woman cannot produce by herself. But when we see something like life coming forth and a baby being born, it highlights that when men and women are together, we fulfill the cultural mandate that God assigned to us at the beginning of time. Right? We, we together reflect the glory of God. When we walk together in God-honoring, Christ-exalting marriage, We reflect the glory of God. If you're not married, when brothers and sisters in Christ serve together, work together, honor each other, and respect each other, we show forth the glory of God 
to the world. How men and women treat each other in the church matters on a larger scale. We communicate the glory of God when we see men and women serving together and working together and praying for one another and supporting one another and encouraging one another and, and helping each other with, each, with their responsibilities. We are showing the world that men and women together, although we are different, our differences highlight the glory of God. You know what's interesting? Here's how I know women are so valuable. We have several examples in the Bible. We, 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 we see Phoebe is highlighted as a deacon in the Lord's church who's serving along with Paul. We see the couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and, and how the wife takes the lead in training up this gifted man named Apollos and teaching him a better way to teach. We see a woman leading in that. A couple is serving together, but the woman is leading and discipling and teaching another man about the final points of the gospel. We see women all throughout Scripture serving. But here's, here's what, 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 what slams the card down on the table is that when the resurrected Jesus appears, the first group of people that he appears to it's not the men, but the women. The women are the first to go and take the good news. When the male disciples are all despondent and down and out because they've lost their brother and their friend, the women come and bring the good news of the gospel. And so women, your, your life matters. Your life is valuable to God. The Bible, Christianity, God doesn't say that a woman is lesser, that a woman is not equal or on par with her husband or other men. But the Bible says that you have something to offer, that, that you reflect the glory of God, that you have value, that you have dignity, that you have worth. So a couple things I want to say, two things I want to say. Number one, you have to demand that people treat you with that dignity and that value and that honor. And number two, if you want people to treat you with dignity, value, and honor, you must first treat yourself with dignity, value, and honor. Because this is what God calls us to. God has a plan for men and women. And in that plan, we're called to work together for the glory of God. And so God needs men to be men and women to be women so that we can be, bring clarity where there once was blurred lines. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.